Today's reading from God's Word is from the book of Jude, verses 17 through 25. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. This is the next to last week. Not, not the next to last week of your life. I hope not anyway. Um, it's the next to last week of the series. If any of you have been keeping track, um, for those of you who haven't been here, we've been in a series on the entire New Testament, or most of it, the epistles from Acts and beyond. And every week I discuss with you one new epistle, the entire thing. I remember the first one I did uh, was the book of Romans. Now, that was a challenge. They're all a challenge, but today it's a little more manageable, at least in terms of verses, because there's only 25 verses to the book or the epistle of Jude. But like every epistle, especially when you're trying to do an overview and you're not in the middle of it somewhere extracting a particular verse, it's helpful to remind ourselves or to hear for the first time, perhaps, in many cases, what the context of the epistle is. So today the question is context of the epistle and the answer is, at least a couple of answers, are this. The author is said to be Jude, the title of the epistle, and Jude is said to be the brother of James. And the brother of James, we know, is the brother of Jesus, which makes them connected to Jesus in a sort of half-genetic kind of way. Jesus, Son of God, from the Holy Spirit conceived in the Virgin Mary, but perhaps of the same two fathers were Joseph and Mary, James and his brother Jude. Now, some people dispute that, as a matter of fact, and that, that's another whole topic, whether or not Mary, the virgin mother of Jesus, ever continued to have children by an earthly father. Uh, in the Protestant tradition, we've never had any difficulty with that. In the Catholic tradition, there's been some problem with that doctrine, and thus um, the Immaculate Conception and the virginity of Mary for the rest of her life. But in our case, for most Protestants, when we look at an epistle like this, we say, yes, half-brother of Jesus. The author is uh, Jude, James's brother, and the problem that the author is addressing is false teachers. Isn't that interesting how many times 
that is exactly what the epistle starts out as doing? I mean, we think of the Bible as word of God and as it, and it is. We think of it as inspired and it is. But for the most part, at least the epistles, they were delivered to us because someone was saying the wrong thing. Someone was teaching a false doctrine. So the epistle was written. Think of Galatians or 1st or 2nd Corinthians or any number of other books that we've studied. And the same is true here. As a matter of fact, when Jude pins this epistle, he says right up front, I intended to write to you about something else. But I can't. Because there's a problem. So let me address it. It's very fascinating to me. The audience that Jude writes to uh, on this occasion is a Jewish Christian audience. That is, people, no doubt, who were born into the Jewish faith, were Jewish by birth and heritage, knew the Old Testament tradition and uh, all around it very well, but had committed themselves to be Christ followers uh, of the Messiah of God. Now, there's one other thing I want to mention about Jude, though we won't spend any time on it. I just think it's interesting. In Jude, there's a couple of mysterious references that we think are a little odd, and they don't find their way into any of the other biblical texts. And one mysterious reference is Moses' body. Remember, Moses goes to Mount Nebo, uh, and he dies. And the text in the Old Testament in the Pentateuch says, and God buried him. But what you see in Jude is a description of Michael the archangel fighting or disputing with Satan over the body of Moses, apparently before God buries him. So you say to yourself, where in the world did that come from? The answer is, not the Bible. It comes from extra-canonical tradition. It comes from probably, well, no doubt, it comes from a, a book called the Assumption of Moses, or sometimes called the Testament of Moses. Now, that might raise a red flag for you um, if you're really into text, and it might bother you a bit, but I guess what I want to say is don't be bothered because what you might not recognize is that it happens all the time in the New Testament. Routinely, an author will quote something that's outside the tradition of the text itself in order to illustrate or make a point. Paul does it, and many other New Testament authors do it as well. It's not as though it's necessarily an endorsement of the story, although it may be, but it's for the purpose of making a theological point that the author is driving at. For instance, let's use this as an illustration. There are some preachers I know who might actually quote something from the Chronicles of Narnia to make a, an important point in their sermon. Can you imagine that? I, I've heard of those guys. Uh, of course, I do it all the time. And I, I quote it right alongside Scripture as if it's the inspired Word of God, which we know it's not. But it is important for us to acknowledge the fact that Scripture does that all the time. Matter of fact, I, I'll get all like professorial here in a minute, but I, I have to say this and I'll stop. As a matter of fact, much of the Old Testament, when you think of the chronicles in the Old Testament and the records that are in the Old Testament, 
The person who authored those was not the person who wrote down the information in Judges or Joshua. That actually was a record from somewhere else. It was a description of a battle. It was a list of how many people were in the battle. All those things are records and they were all over the place and collected in order to give us what we now consider to be inspired word of God. And in the same way, Jude quotes the assumption of Moses or the testament of Moses. We don't know what he really thought of the testament of Moses, but we do know that he thought it important since they knew the tradition to use it. Now, having said all that, what's the book of Jude all about? I want to divide the book of Jude up into three phrases. First, Jude says, I want you to persevere in truth or the truth. I want you to persevere in obedience. And I want you to persevere in faith or the faith. First, perseverance in the truth. He actually says, I want you to contend for the truth. And that word actually could be translated probably properly so. I want you to wrestle or fight for the truth. Um, the people in the first century at this time were as fascinated by athletic endeavors as we are. We're sports fanatics, and so were they. At least some of us are, and I know I am. And we look at sports, and we look at images in sports, and we think of them in terms of spirituality and battle and all those sort of things. Fight for the truth, he says. Grind it out. Stay with it. Don't give up. I can't help myself. The U.S. Open is happening today, and it's uh, way over on the West Coast. And it looks like the British Open... Uh, if you've seen any of the images, I mean, the course is really rough. There's like huge, long, tall, big mounds of grass right in the middle of it. It's, it's awful. It's tough. You got to persevere on that course. On Friday, there was a young man named Jason. Um, I'm sorry. Yes, Jason Gray. Uh, who is um, from Australia and he's on the tour. And he had a really rough day, not because he was just in the rough, but because he has vertigo. He gets terribly dizzy and walking up to the green after he had teed off, he completely fell, absolutely fell down, lost it altogether. He's laying on his back, the medical personnel are coming around helping him out, his caddy's there talking him through it. Jason gets up and continues to play that round of golf. Yesterday, he played a spectacular round of golf. And going into today, he's at the top of the leaderboard with three other people. He persevered. He said, I'm not going to let this vertigo get me. As a matter of fact, it was fascinating to me. His vertigo was so bad yesterday that the sports commentators noted on one occasion how they saw it. He leaned down to put his tee into the ground and nearly lost his balance and stood up and shook his head and tried to shake it out and then hit a drive, like some ridiculous 350-yard drive, and kept right on playing. That's perseverance. Jude said, I want you to persevere for the truth. I want you to stay at it. I want you to fight for it. It's that important. You know what he's basically saying? The truth has been delivered. 
the basics of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, has already been delivered. And there are people all around you who are trying to get overly creative and take the truth off track. Don't go there. Stay with the truth. Stick with it. Fight for it. We have a love of creativity in our generation. Especially the new generation, not so much mine. My kids' generation. You guys, you're always looking for something new. The next upgrade. The next best thing. The old is out, the new's always coming in. Look at your advertisements on TV. There's something like a contrast going on here in Jude and in our life. Jude says, no, don't look for the next upgrade. (laughs) Don't look for the next best thing. The best thing is right here in front of you. Stick to it and fight for it. Now, for some people, we really resonate with that kind of language because I'm not a tech guy. You know, Um, I've got an upgrade coming on my phone July the 11th, and I am dreading it. Because I'm getting a new phone. And I know when I get a new phone, there's going to be some new cutesy thing on there that I'm not going to understand. It's going to throw me off, and I'm dreading it. The reason I'm getting a new phone is because my old phone is pretty much broken. If you call me, just fair warning, if you call me, you're on speakerphone. Because that's the only way it could be heard. It won't do that thing in my ear. It only broadcasts out loud. So I'm talking to everybody on speakerphone. I'm really getting tired of it. But still, still, I'm dreading the upgrade. Because I know the new phone is going to be different. Jude says, I want you to stay with the eternal truth of God. And in effect, if you look at the context, he's essentially saying the truth doesn't change and the truth doesn't decay. But the truth can be twisted. The twisting of truth is always associated with other people. So I want you to persevere in the truth. Second, he says, I want you to persevere in obedience. Because these teachers who are teaching a false doctrine are also people who have not persevered in obedience to the word of God. They scorn authority. They don't care. Probably speaking of apostolic authority, they just scorn it. Uh, Let me stop there, huh? You say, well, um, we don't have that problem. Our authority is the Word of God. We don't scorn authority. We understand the importance of authority. Yes, but. You've heard me refer to it before, but let me stir the pot once again. It's not enough for you as an evangelical or me as an evangelical to say, it's me and my Bible. It's me and my relationship with Jesus. And that's all I need. No, it's not. You on your own with your Bible will inevitably become a heretic. It'll happen every time. And that's the Achilles heel of the world that we live in among evangelical types. There is an authority that's been delivered to us outside of Scripture itself. 
that helps us to interpret Scripture itself. In other words, I need the teachings of godly, faithful people to help me understand the Word of God. I'm not a great preacher. I'm not a great teacher. I'm not a great pastor. But I promise you, my friends, that whenever it's time to deliver the Word of God, I have worked diligently not only to study the Scripture for myself, but to study the Scripture in the context of faithful scholarship and the tradition of the church. I need it or else I will go off track. That doesn't mean that every element of the tradition of the church is infallible. It doesn't mean that it raises its same standard as the Word of God, but it means I need it. So they, those teachers, they scorned authority. Probably he means they scorned apostolic authority. Apostolic authority was pretty short-lived at that time. It hadn't been around very long. Uh, We've got a lot more of a tradition for 2,000 years that's been around. These false teachers, he said, not only scorn authority, they're greedy. They want what other people have. They probably even want what they, the people they serve have. They're overwhelmed by greed. These teachers are sexually immoral. He doesn't mean that these teachers are people who fail. He means these teachers are people who have completely given themselves over merely to the lust of the flesh and said, it doesn't matter. I will live however my natural instincts tell me to live. I will not be conformed by any rules at all. That's what these teachers are like, he says. Then he goes on and and he gets uh, very creative and colorful in his description of the teachers. He says these teachers are dreamers. And basically he means by that they're visionaries. They got a new idea all the time. They got a new revelation from God for you. And you need to hear it because it's from God. Be wary of those teachers. These teachers are so bold they'll even slander celestial beings. These teachers are blemishes. When I saw that blemishes, my first thought was, yeah, like a pimple on your face, you know, that you used to get when you were 16. Or like a pimple on your face that you get right before you get married, three days before you get married for the pictures. Remember that, my, my big fat Greek wedding? I love that movie. The guy gets a pimple on his face and his future father-in-law has told him that Windex will work and he squirts it on there. <laughs> and it works. But this is not the kind of blemish James, uh, Jude's talking about. When he says blemish, the word actually means something more like this. Like a reef, jagged, sharp reef under the surface of the water that could split a ship in half. That a swimmer could swim to and cut himself up profusely. You ever seen those reefs? They're beautiful. Snorkeled or scuba dived around them. They're a place of life. But they're dangerous. Jude says these teachers are like a reef under the water, ready to attack and destroy. These teachers, he says, are like shepherds who feed only themselves. Imagine that image. Is there anything more important to a shepherd than feeding sheep? That's what shepherds do. They feed their sheep. 
He turns it completely upside down. He said, these people who call themselves teachers and shepherds are so bad that all they do is feed themselves. It's as though they take their sheep to the desert where there's no water and there's no grass and they have a full pouch of their own food and they eat it while their sheep starve. That's what these teachers are like, he said. They're also like clouds without rain. What an image is that, huh? How many times have you waited for a drought to come to an end and you saw a cloud that just looked so promising and nothing there? That's these teachers, he said. He said they're like uh, trees without fruit. They're like wild waves. They're like wandering stars. That one needs a little explanation. Wandering stars in, in the ancient world meant chaos and evil. They looked at the fixed heavens and they watched the constellations and they knew them very well. But a shooting star was not a good idea. It meant something was awry. So using that understanding of first century astronomy, he said they're like wandering stars out of order, chaotic, evil. Here's the point. First of all, don't follow them. Okay. And second of all, don't be like them. If you follow them, you follow them to your own destruction. And if you are like them, you walk to your own destruction. And he gives them some biblical warnings of how God judges people who walk this way. He talks about how God delivered the people of Israel from Egypt, but destroyed those who were disobedient or had no faith. You remember the story. The story of those first generation Israelites who didn't believe God and turned their backs on him. And God said, okay, have it your way. See what you can do for 40 years in the desert. I'll leave you here on your own. I'll let you wander in circles and you will die. Jude says, be careful, don't follow them. That's what happens. He said, not only that, the perfect angels who rebelled against God. God bound them up in eternal chains and darkness, waiting for the day of judgment. Don't go there. Even the angels got judged, and so will you. And don't surrender to the lust of the flesh. And by the lust of the flesh, uh, in the New Testament, it means more than sexual lust of the flesh. It means everything. In other words, the mere desires of the human nature itself, being the guiding light for your life. Don't go there, because like Sodom and Gomorrah, if you turn yourself over to that, you'll be destroyed. I want you to persevere in obedience. Third thing he says, I want you to persevere in faith. At the very end of the uh, epistle of James, he says, there are going to be scoffers in the last day. I just want to remind you of maybe what you already know. There are going to be scoffers. Be aware of it. And when you're aware of scoffers, I want you to do something else. In the face of the scoffing, here's what I want you to do. This has become my, my new favorite phrase from the New Testament this week. He said, I want, to, want you to keep yourself in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring eternal life. Is that beautiful? I want you to keep yourself in God's love. I want you to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. I want you to stay right there. I want you to stay at the heart of the gospel. The gospel of grace. I want you to love that God. 
is revealed in Jesus Christ. While you wait for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, haven't we already received the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ? Of course we have. That's the grace we receive in Jesus Christ, but he means more. I want you to wait for the full mercy of God because of the great mercy of God. Someday everything is going to be made new and you will inherit complete, full, eternal life. I want you to stay in the very love of God, right at the center of his heart, as you wait for the completion of the mercy of Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. That's how I want you to live. How do you do this? Jude actually answers himself if he were to ask the question. He said, this is how you do it. You live in such a way that you extend mercy to those who doubt. I want you to be merciful to those who doubt. I hope you understand. I hope we've communicated enough at ECC this reality of the importance of honest doubt as associated with faith. Some don't preach that. Some preach absolute confidence and a lofty faith that knows no doubt. James knows it's not true. And he said, I want you to deal in mercy with those who are struggling with doubt. Can I fill in the gap? Jude must be saying, I want you to extend mercy to those who doubt because you know you understand doubt. You've been there. One of my favorite descriptions of faith as a companion of doubt is uh, John the Baptist. He was the first person to ever point to Jesus Christ and say the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world before anybody had ever pronounced it, before he even understood what he was saying. A prophetic revelation. The Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. And then when John is thrown into prison and it's dank and it's dank and it's dark and he's about ready to get his head chopped off, he sends his disciples to Jesus and he says, ask him this, are you really the one? Or should we look for another? John's right down near death. It's getting really real for him. And he said, I want to wrestle with my doubt one more time. I just want you to tell me yes, Jesus. Tell me yes again. Jude said, be merciful with those who doubt. It's part of faith. Be careful. I I speak to myself more than anybody. Verbose preacher. Be careful about your confidence and how you pontificate faith because it can leave people out it can make them feel as though they don't have salvation faith because you sound so confident about everything be merciful to those who doubt 
I want you, says Jude, to live this way. I want you to be merciful with those who dealt. And I also want you to show mercy mixed with fear. Isn't that an interesting turn of phrase? I want you to show mercy mixed with fear. I want you to understand both things and hold them in constant tension. I want you to understand mercy and grace and the overwhelming nature of the grace of Jesus Christ. And I want you also to fear God. It reminds me of that almost divinely inspired hymn. Pretty close to being canonical, I think. (laughs) Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. Isn't that a wonderful juxtaposition? It was grace that gave me the fear of a holy God, and it was grace that relieved that fear of a holy God. It's mercy that I embrace. And it's the fear of God that brings me to the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. I hold them in constant tension. I want you to live like that as you persevere in faith. And I I want you to live in such a way that you hate clothing that's stained by sin. It just means basically anything that's close to sin. I want you to hate it and fight against it. Now there's a job. Yeah. You got that one for the rest of your life. I'm in there with you. Don't stop the fight. You're never going to accomplish the end that you wish for. The clothing that's stained by sin is your own clothing. It's never going to completely go away, but fight it. I want you to wrestle with it. That's how I want you to live. And here's the final thing I want you to do while you live that way. I've used this as a benediction many times, and I might as well read it now. As you live that way, I want you to remember this. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages now and forevermore. As you live this way, as you persevere in the truth, as you persevere in obedience, as you persevere in the faith, I want you to remember that the God who has called you is going to finish the work. I want you to remember that it is He who is able to keep you from falling. You can't keep yourself from falling, but He can. I want you to remember that it is He who will perfect you in the end. You can't perfect yourself, never, but He will. I want you to remember that you should worship with all your heart and love and soul and mind and strength the one who's doing this in you. Worship Him. Jude, at least at the beginning, could seem kind of dark, couldn't it? (laughs) Foreboding. But at the end... Wow, is it grace. You don't have to be creative with the gospel. It's powerful enough by itself. It's the power of God unto salvation. Man, do I rely on that every Sunday. Like, how am I going to say it different? And I guess that's good for me to try to be creative, but my creativity does nothing for the gospel. It's its own power.
I don't even have to, and you don't even have to have all your theology right, in spite of the fact that Jude tells us to tenaciously guard and hang on to the truth. We'll never get it all right. As a matter of fact, we'll be absolutely wrong sometimes. Even when we attempt to guard the truth. But we live in God's love and wait for His mercy. I'm a... Not really, but I call myself a runner. I'm, I just kind of clump along, but I finish. And um, how many half marathon? 14? 15? Something like that I've done. I mean, I've run quite a bit. And I always finish. I'm not very good. But I hang in there and I finish. So... Runner images are important to me. And as a matter of fact, they're, they're in the Bible a lot. Whether it's Hebrews or Paul talks about running. And sometimes, uh, especially when you're trying to do half marathons and marathons, you say to yourself, okay, I've got to remind myself that it's not about when I finish, how fast I go. It's about finishing. And if I just do my best, my best is enough. And that's true. Except when it comes to faith. You probably didn't expect that turn, right? Actually, your best is not enough. Because your best will never achieve salvation. Your best will never achieve faith. Your best is not good enough. But when you... And I live in the love of God and give it our best. God does the rest. It's God who finishes the race. It's he that redeems. That's grace. Your best doesn't get you there. God does. And he's enough. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gospel of grace. Um, it's always coupled with the, the dark reality of error and sin and false teachings. And it's just always there. But I guess that's why it's so brilliant, because it's such a stunning contrast to our sinful nature, to the chaos of our world, to false teaching. There's beauty all around, Lord. We acknowledge that. We see you in everyday aspects of life, but we know that that beauty uh, is eclipsed by your beauty. It's, it's hardly even a shadow. It sometimes turns us to you, and other times it turns us to ourselves. It turns us inward, and we try to satisfy everything naturally. But, God, you call us away from that approach to life. You call us to pursue you in, in unconditional love. To persevere in the truth and obedience and in the faith. So we pray you will help us to do that this week. And then, Lord, give us the promise again and again and again that you will perfect us. You will do the work that we cannot do. You will finish the race on our behalf because your grace is good and free. And we've received it in Jesus Christ, our Lord.
in whose name we pray. Amen.